are entering the Freedom Hut. Whistleblower going to give written answers only? I don't think so. Plus, not a single question about Elizabeth Warren's heritage, but a lot of questions from the media about the health care disaster that she has ruled out. Also, we're in total political polarization. The polls are showing us that this country is definitely divided, my friends. Trump's removal, highly competitive key states. We've got that data and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show. Great to have you with me here on this wonderful Monday in N. Why, see, it's starting to get a little chilly. Feels like fall in the air, doesn't it, Producer Mark? I've got to stop wearing just the, the vest and maybe go for a full jacket. Yeah, soon. you're going to need a jacket soon. You need a jacket soon. For right? sure. Otherwise, I just look like a finance bro. We all walk around with, they walk around with these like L.L. Bean vests on. We got a big show today to get to. Uh, we've got the president who is fighting hard on the impeachment narrative that's being rolled out against him. In fact, why, why, don't, we, why don't we hop right to that? The whistleblower. Also known as the deep state Democrat who is furiously and feverishly trying to avoid anyone really knowing who this person is because the whole thing will collapse. Just like remember how the dossier was used as and the dossier was treated as serious. James Comey briefed President Trump after he won the election on. I just wanted him to know that this was out there. Oh, no, it wasn't supposed to be a sword of Damocles on the new president elect's administration. It was just meant to be a. A friendly reminder from Shady Sanctacomi. Nice administration you got coming in here. Be ashamed if something happened to it. So they used the dossier for the FISA warrant. They used the dossier to justify all this stuff, as you remember. And initially, when people started to ask questions, where did this dossier come from? Who pulled this thing together? It was a conspiracy theory, they told us that this was maybe Democrat opposition research. And they fought very hard to make sure nobody would know that. And then we found out. Yes, in fact, the DNC, through a couple of cutouts, did pay for the anti-Trump dossier. But the damage had already largely been done. People had been fed this narrative of anti-Trumpism for so long that they believed it even when the facts came in to refute what they had been told. This is the, the Twitter phenomenon. The lie about Trump gets 30,000 retweets, right? The damaging thing about him. Oh, I, I, heard, I heard an anonymous report that President Trump is going to resign tomorrow because he's about to go to prison. 30,000 retweets. And then same journalist, same account a couple hours later. Turns out that was a hoax that I perpetrated and there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Like 100 retweets. Now, you might say, oh, but Buck, they they want to defend their credibility. No, they don't. They're activists. They're propagandists. Their credibility doesn't really matter. All that matters is what they're trying to achieve. And in this case, they're trying to achieve the destruction of President Donald Trump. Which then brings me to the whistleblower. Who wants to place a bet now that we will find out exactly what I said from the first week the whistleblower story broke? I will take a bit of a bow here because I tend to see these things coming. A little of that old CIA nerd analyst skill set coming into play. Uh, when we find out eventually, as I believe we will, who the whistleblower is. 
we will not be surprised at all when we learn that this person is deeply anti-Trump. There's already reporting that while this person was, and we will say he, I suppose, for now, because the name that's out there is a he, while he was at the NSC, there were concerns among other NSC staffers that this person was trying to take down the president. This person was a deep state operative. Why should we think that that's so, uh, that's so unbelievable? Well, we shouldn't think that at all. It's entirely believable. In fact, let's remember, my friends, that just to get at General Flynn, somebody in the United States government, and almost certainly a very senior person, somebody in the United States government thought that it was appropriate, in fact, even necessary to leak the contents of a phone call that would have been highly, highly classified, and in doing so, present themselves with the possibility of serious prison time. Somebody would place themselves in legal jeopardy. Someone did this. This happened. Just to stick a thumb in the eye of General Michael Flynn and the Trump administration. So don't tell me. No, no one can convince me that there aren't people who are currently working for the federal government who would not be willing to lie, to break rules, to act in ways that are violations of the oaths they pretend they're upholding by attacking Trump. Nobody will convince me that that's beyond belief. Of course, it's entirely believable. And that's why this whistleblower is trying so very hard to make sure we don't find out who it is. Because just as with the dossier, the credibility crumbled the moment we knew who had paid for it. The moment we figure out who this whistleblower really is. Oh, and the second whistleblower, too. What happened to that person? I know the lawyer who is representing both of these individuals. He is a deeply anti-Trump, nice enough fellow, deeply anti-Trump, hates the president, despises the president of the United States. So none of this is surprising to me. But I would note that in the early days of this whole effort to take down the president, we were told that it was necessary for the whistleblower to testify, that the whistleblower would in fact have to share uh, so much with the American people that they would have to know. And then when it came out that there was early stage coordination with Adam Schiff, the shiftiest of characters in the Democrat Congress, now we're told, oh no, only written answers. That's the latest. Only written answers to be shared. Why wouldn't this person be willing to take questions from Republicans? Because it would be too obvious. Why can't they allow the same process that would be Essential, as I've talked to you about in any any understanding of our judicial system and goes all the way back to English common law. Why can't this person be submitted to some form of even if behind closed doors cross examination? Are Democrats desperate to avoid that because the whole thing will collapse? Now, I believe they know the whole thing will eventually collapse regardless of whether the person testifies or not. They're just trying to, as we saw with the dossier and Russia collusion madness, extend the lifespan of this damaging narrative as long as they can because it molds perception along the way it it, it convinces people one it, it feeds the left wing the rabid insane left wing base the anti-trumpism that they need but also people will think wow there must be something to this we're hearing about impeachment every day day after day perhaps president trump did do something wrong you also note that i've told you from the beginning I wasn't into the the oh quid pro quo or not defense. I was into the I don't understand what the problem is here defense. 
there's a there's a legitimate basis to investigate the Bidens. That that looks bad for the Democrats is just too darn bad. Sorry. The same people that pushed a farcical investigation of Donald Trump saying that he worked with the Russians to overturn to cheat in an election. Those same people pretend that wasn't entirely political, but the investigation of Hunter Biden and Joe Biden would that didn't even happen, by the way, would be. This is this is unserious stuff from the left, but unfortunately, unserious stuff defines the left these days. Serious risk, serious damages to rule of law and to fairness and decency. But intellectually speaking, entirely unserious. That should be the left's bumper sticker. We are entirely unserious. Now you have four White House witnesses who have said that they are not going to show up at the House committee. They're going to uh, defy subpoenas in this impeachment probe. And everyone's going to say on the left, of course, the Democrats, oh, this is terrible. How could they? Disrespecting the United States Congress. Well, the executive branch has prerogatives. The Congress has prerogatives. The executive branch has powers. Congress has. You, you see what I'm saying? Separate but equal branches of government. And so what happens now? Well, the tie goes to the judges. That's what's going to happen. They're taking this into the courts. And the Trump administration should take a page from the book of the Democrats. See, if the Trump administration was going to play by the uh, Romney-McCain rules of, of, you know, back in the day, they would just say, okay, whatever you want, we'll just comply. We'll just, we'll just do it because the sanctity of our democracy is at stake or whatever. Hmm. No, instead, they're going to say, take us to court. Let's see what the judges say. Take us to court. Let's see what the judges say. Fight it at every step of the way. The process is there to defend them. Use the process as a defense. Otherwise, the process only gets used against Republicans and against Trump as offense. This is the world that we live in now. This is the country that we are dealing with and the Democrat Party that has completely lost its mind. In fact, President Trump even went so far as to say that. Producer Mark, would you please play uh, clip nine for me? I think the president was in rare form recently. The Democrats are crazed. They're lunatics. In the meantime, we have the greatest economy ever. We have a uh, man on the other side, uh, Adam Schiff, who's a corrupt politician, as you know. He's a corrupt politician. He made up a speech and he read what I said, and it wasn't what I said. It was a terrible thing he said. And many people saw that. The Democrats are crazy, Trump says. I, I can't pretend that I disagree with him. There is a mania at the heart of all of this anti-Trumpism. There is a, a disconnect from reality, an inability to be objective, an unwillingness to be fair. And it's unlike anything I've ever seen before in politics. I'd be willing to bet it's unlike anything you've ever seen before in politics, because I don't think this has ever happened before. Not in this way. Certainly not in our modern media environment. And the people who think that we're going to go back to normal after this aren't paying attention. So the only way through it is to win. And that then brings me to the polls. Oh, we hear so much about polls these days and what they mean for the president. We are a year out for the election. Let's dive, let's dive into some of the numbers and what it means, not just for who might win the next election, but also how does that affect perceptions of the impeachment process that is currently underway? I have the real polls. The CNN polls are fake. The Fox polls have always been lousy. I tell them they ought to get themselves a new pollster. 
But the real polls, if you, you look at the polls, that, you look at the polls that came out this morning, people don't want anything to do with impeachment. It's a phony scam. It's a hoax. Notice how there are certain polls that keep getting done and there are other polls that never get done. For example, I would like to know, I would like to know if we're ever going to see a poll on whether or not the American people think Adam Schiff is a liar. Can we see a poll on whether the Democrats have basically gone insane? Now, you might say, well, Buck, that would only be probably 50 percent right. We are in a very polarized political climate. We are in total political polarization. There's very little middle ground on any issue right now. The establishment, the media, the Democrats, they're all trying to make sure that we are as at each other's throats as we can possibly be over every political issue. And that's not about to change anytime soon. But here's the problem that Democrats are going to have to get by or that Democrats are going to have to be dealing with. You have, sure, 49 percent, according to the uh, according to NBC Wall Street Journal, support impeaching and removing Trump for, from office. Forty six percent oppose it. That's basically the 2016 election results. That's It's right in that same realm. So nothing has really changed. We are gearing up right now to anyone who's paying attention, who's being honest. We are gearing up right now for a replay within the electorate of 2016. That's what we are heading for. Now, there's a very obvious conclusion that should come from all of that. Well, if that's what we're heading for, aren't we heading for the same result? And to that, I would say, uh, looks like it. And this is why when you start to dig into the numbers more deeply, specifically the numbers on, forget about nationwide, this very broad uh, broad swath of, of polling that they'll do about likely voters across the nation. When you break it down by battleground state, and this was just a poll that came out, there were numbers that came out over the weekend. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you have people who are saying that Biden leads Trump by double digits. You will hear that. All right. Uh, By 12 points. And this is according to a Fox News poll. But when you look at the state by state polling and candidate by candidate, what you find is that Biden in the key states that will determine the next election. Right. Ohio, Nevada, Wisconsin, North Carolina. uh, Biden is up by a point or two against Trump in some of those places. When you switch to Bernie Sanders, all of a sudden Trump is up by a few points. And when you switch to Elizabeth Warren, guess what? Trump is up by a bunch in the states that matter. No one really cares how many more votes Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders would win California by than Trump. What matters is the Electoral College and the way that our system, despite what Democrats try to do to change it on the fly, what our system uh, rewards when it comes to politicians and how they campaign and the way that our system is built. So here's where we're heading for a replay of 2016 in which Democrats are pretty much within the margin of error. But you have to also think that last time around they were within the margin of error in the polls and Trump won. This time around, you have had all of these efforts by the media, impeachment, Russia collusion. They've they've already been running an anti-Trump campaign with everything they've had for the last three years, really nonstop. 
I mean, the effort to impeach Trump has been going on since he first got into office. The effort to undermine his presidency has been going on since he first got into office. There's nothing different here. Nothing changed. What happens, though, when all of a sudden Trump gets to focus a bit more, not just on the campaign trail, where we know he excels in a way that really no other politician, uh, certainly on the right in his generation, has been able to. What happens when you have a Democrat, not a a general change idea of a Democrat. Oh, well, this person would be different, a return to normalcy, less angry tweets. So, yeah, like, what if it's, oh, no, you're really going to vote for a President Biden or Warren or Judge or Sanders? I was going to say President Bernie, but close enough. Then people might say, well, hold on a second. The I think the Dow Jones hit an all, was it an all-time high today? Is that right, Producer Mark? Stock market's still booming. Unemployment's still super low. No big unnecessary wars. A lot less regulation. Much easier to start a business than it was before. Much easier to pay your bills than it was before. Trump got into office. What exactly is the... Trump was right. There was a massive scam being run at our southern border. And the administration has done a lot, not enough, but a lot to try and tackle that. Trump was right that China has been ripping us off and stealing our intellectual property and getting a free ride. And so standing up to China has cost the Chinese economy a lot more than it has cost our economy. And our economy is still very strong. So what's really the pitch to get rid of Trump when you have another candidate, another person who has to stand across from him on a stage? Medicare for all? Well, that's a, an idiotic disaster waiting to happen. We'll talk about Elizabeth Warren's massive fumble there. But this all actually ties into impeachment as well and how there's a, an aspect of this that is unknowable. But when you're heading for another disaster in the eyes of the left with a Trump victory, so that's when you start getting desperate and just throwing report. things at the wall. And because of that false report, people thought bad things were done. And then you had Schiff go out and speak before Congress and before the American people, and give a false story. He made up a story. And then I released, after after all this was done, I released, and everybody said he didn't do anything wrong. But the whistleblower should be revealed, because the whistleblower gave false stories. Some people would call it a fraud. I won't go that far, but when I read it closely, I probably would. So back to the whistleblower for a moment here. Why is it that the situation right now is uh, that the Democrats are pushing forward with this, even though it's it's such an on its face, a weak case? Remember, put aside for a moment the argument, the the argument over judgment and over the, the quid pro quo here that whether it existed or did not exist. Put that aside and just think about it in the following way. Nothing happened. Ukraine got its aid and no investigation was started. So you're going to try to impeach a president for an interpretation of a phone call that did not result in the actions that allegedly the phone call was meant to get to happen. How much weaker is it going to get than that? This is not a compelling case. You will notice, and there were many conservatives who were a little little shook, a little uh, little nervous when this first happened. A lot of people on the right for a second said, "Uh uh-oh, it's a bad phone call. It might have been politically unwise to say those things on that phone call but that's a far cry from "Uh oh the administration is over and there were a lot of people that were making that case that the administration should effectively or could effectively come to an end because of the trump zelensky conversation but i want to point to my friend annie mccarthy's piece on 
National Review right now, where he says that we don't know what new revelations might emerge or whether they would unnerve the president's support within the GOP. The title of the article is Impeachment is Unpredictable. Now this starts to make a bit more sense. When we look at where the situation is right now with the polls, with the economy, anyone who is being honest, even on the left, must know. I mean, these polls you see about Biden with a double-digit lead, no serious person really believes that that's the way that this election is going to go if it were held tomorrow. In fact, the smartest, the, the savviest political observers that I know on the left and the right have been agree with me, which is probably why I think they're so savvy, if we're going to be honest about this, but that Biden's not even going to make it past, you know, March or April in the race, that Biden is good. He's going to lose his front runner status. And that's going to be that's going to be it for the Biden campaign. I think that's where this is all headed. Who takes over that? The problem is you don't have a second or a third candidate, really, who can become the establishment person easily, especially with Elizabeth Warren's. Wow, let's talk about our health care with her debacle, which we will get to. But so. In that context, all of what's going on right now around impeachment, the whistleblower, these witnesses being called, not testifying, the fights in the courts, Adam Schiff's shady behind closed doors shenanigans, Schiff's shady shenanigans. There we go. All of that starts to make more sense because they need an X factor. The Democrats, the left, they need something to shake up what the momentum is looking like right now. They need to throw a wrench into the gears. They need to do something that will offset the advantage that Trump is going to have when you have a Democrat candidate emerging from this primary, or at least it becomes clear who the likely Democrat candidate will be, and that person has to fight against Donald Trump. And that's why this impeachment proceeding, they're really so concerned with process and timing because it's all about getting those two things or controlling the first and getting the second one correct. They could turn this impeachment, they could offer up, and, and this is, Andy goes into this, where we're focused on Ukraine, but that's really just the pretext to get this whole thing going. I don't believe, the Democrats really believe that Ukraine alone, for example, would be enough to remove the president. Uh, that's to me, an unserious position, an unserious argument. I, I don't believe that's where this is. So then we go to the next level of this. Okay, well, if that's the case, what are they trying to accomplish? What are Schiff and Pelosi and, you know, and the whole rest of them, you know, Schumer, all the, all the leaders of the Democrat left, what are they hoping to get out of this impeachment proceeding? I know it's run by the House, but obviously these other other Democrat voices matter in this process. And when the Senate trial happens, Chuck Schumer will certainly have a voice that people are listening to in this, much to my irritation and as well as many other people's. But the answer is, it'll just be the anti-Trump show. We don't know what's going to come out. We don't know what articles of impeachment they will, they will present. And more to the point, who knows what they may find in this process. I just saw today that I think an appeals court denied the Trump administration's uh, position that New York City can't subpoena his tax records. That's what they're going to do. By the way, the same people who always tell you that Trump is destroying the rule of law and Trump is, uh, is a dictator and, all, and a fascist, 
Notice how whenever the administration, whenever this White House disagrees with a position, their immediate response is, okay, well, let's go to court. You know, their immediate response is, we'll see you in court. That's not what dictators do. That's not what fascists do, especially not with an independent judiciary that, if anything, leans anti-Trump, if we're going to say that there's some bias there. If we're going to be fair-minded about this, overwhelmingly it's the case that the judiciary is not in line with the Trump administration, um, or at least so far on a lot of key issues at the lower level. All you need is one member of the judiciary who happens to be in the Ninth Circuit or whatever circuit, but in the more liberal parts of the country to invoke a universal injunction and stop the administration from doing what it should be able to do. But they're going to try every trick in the book. They're going to try and unearth new information. They're going to try to present things to their allies in the press to take Trump down because you have to also remember that this is this is uh, a matter of sanity for the left now. They're, they're worried that they may have a collective nervous breakdown if Trump wins re-election. I really believe that. But beyond that, this is an opportunity to replay 2016. This is an opportunity for the Democrats, especially the Democrats in the media, the so-called journalist class, to set right what was, uh, what was wrong in 2016 when they either were a little too complacent or just a little too ineffective in destroying Trump. I think it was a combination of both. Um, they figured that things were just going to head to a Hillary win. And so remember, I mean, NBC and the, the uh, Access Hollywood tape, I mean, that this was a despicable last minute tactic of the media. I mean, they didn't want the people to be able to think about this for very long. This was the classic October surprise media colluding with the Democratic Party to take down a candidate they did not like. And it did not work. They want another October surprise. That's this is a fishing expedition right now for that, whether it's from Trump's taxes or Stormy Daniels, they'll try to find something. And as much as it is frustrating, annoying, uh, a deep distraction from what really matters in this country and what the government should be working on. If we're going to be honest about it, I understand why Democrats are doing this now. Because there's a quiet panic within the Democratic Party. They've got weak candidates running against this president. The president objectively has a record to point to now that any normal person would look at and say, yeah, can we have more of that? That seems like a good idea for the country. You know, the tweets are not what people should be evaluating as the main reason to vote for or against President Trump. It's things like the economy, unemployment, the stock market, GDP growth. I mean, all the different metrics and factors that you can look at. And also, how about not starting a really unnecessary war? Not in intervening in a country militarily in a way where we're stuck uh, trying to prop some faulty regime up and trying to train police and soldiers in foreign countries who many cases turn their backs on us. I mean, just enough is enough of all that. We've managed to get away from that now. In fact, one of my concerns is that the uh, is that too many good Americans are going to be complacent because things are going so well, they figure everything's just going to be okay. You know, we must have learned our lesson from the eight years of the Obama administration where the country was not doing as well as it should have done. So everything will be fine. Don't show up and vote in the next election. Trump will win. It's going to be close. It doesn't matter what candidate the Democrats put forward. It's going to be close. I and mean, this is an election that's going to be fought largely 
over the razor's edge. It's going to be very tight in all these different plays. Now, Trump in the Electoral College, I think, might absolutely wallop. I mean, just might crush whoever his opponent is. But in the popular vote and in the overall vote count and vote tally and state by state, it's going to be a tight one. And that's why Andy McCarthy's point here in National Review about impeachment is uncertain. What do Democrats have to lose from doing this? If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But they've taken the position that whatever structural damage they do to our system of government, whatever happens as a result of this down the line to other presidencies and the way that this tears tears at the fabric of the country, separates us, embitters us against each other, divides us as a people, all of that is Democrats don't really care as long as they have a shot to do something that stops the Trump train from cruising to victory in 2020, which they have to be. I mean, they are unscrupulous. The left is unscrupulous, but savvy. They have to be concerned about that, looking at the way everything is going right now. And so, sure, are they are they taking some long, you know, long bombs in the end zone to see what can happen here with impeachment? Are they just, you know, doing what they can to create the possible scenario of something catastrophic that emerges for Trump where GOP support? See, if it's just entirely partisan, then then this is all a waste. When you have defections among GOP uh, in that GOP members of the House and then perhaps even some GOP senators, when they say I can no longer support this president, even if it does not result in removal from office, which I think that would have to be a truly unforeseeable and catastrophic situation, even if that's the case, you know, that then there'll be damage done to the president of the United States going into re-election, right? So if he, don't, if he doesn't get removed, but there are some Republican defections, that looks bad. They're trying to at least get there. That, I think, is the goal. Get a few Republicans to peel off. Just tell enough sordid tales about Stormy Daniels or about tax returns or something so that Republicans who are in some tough, uh, some tough re-election fights say, I, you know, I can't. They, they try to do that soundbite that will make the New York Times ease up on them a little bit, not realizing that the New York Times is just going to destroy them a week later. Republicans never learn this lesson, by the way. They always think that if they can get mainstream papers to view them as reasonable, as sound thinkers, they'll, they'll continue to be fair to them. That's never the case. They just use them and discard them. This is so true of never Trumpers as well. They're used by the mainstream media and, and abused and then discarded the moment they're no longer useful. It's a lesson that I wish... Some never-Trumpers out there that I know from Media World would, would learn, but I suppose it's just too seductive to go from being uh, quasi-anonymous after having been in this business to all of a sudden being given a big platform because you hate Trump so much. There's a lot of that going on, unfortunately. You know what terrifies me? Impeachment, conviction, re-election as a private citizen. Now I'm going gonna... <laughs> That, that qualifies for analysis over at MSNBC. That's what keeps them up late at night. Impeachment, conviction, removal, and then winning again. I know she's kind of kidding, but it's hard to assess what the left thinks is a joke and what they don't because so much of what they say is an unfunny or unintentional joke about this president. They've completely uh, lost their minds. In fact, President Trump is even saying that the most powerful Democrat right now in elected office, Nancy Pelosi, which tells you a lot about who the Democrats are, uh, that that she is, in fact, a little bit a little bit wacko. Producer Mark, would you please play the president explaining his thoughts on the Speaker of the House, clip 10? 
I think Nancy Pelosi has lost her mind, and I think, frankly, that she should go back home to San Francisco. Because her district has become a mess, number one in the country for going down. All she thinks about is impeachment, but she doesn't want to impeach. You know who wants to impeach? The people that run the party, the radical left. You know, the sad truth is for places like San Francisco, it's true here in New York City as well. Members of Congress are really meant to be the progressive avatars of the voters in these districts at the federal level. They're meant to attacking Trump if you're a representative. I mean, never mind Speaker of the House, but if you're just a representative from a very, very blue district, um, then you're doing your job. It's much less about what can be done through congressional legislation for the people of that area. Attacking Trump is good for business, unfortunately. Attacking Trump is the single most important thing to a lot of voters in places like New York City and San Francisco. Because you've got to think, if politicians were being judged by results, Nancy Pelosi would no longer have elected office. California would no longer be a Democratic mono, uh, mono party or monoculture. It's just top to bottom Democrats running that state now. Mayor Bill de Blasio would not even make it through office without, I think, I don't know if we could remove them here through a a recall or something. I'd I'd have to look into that in New York, but they'd figure something out. They'd push about office somehow using the process. But instead, what, what has become very apparent to me is all you have to do if you represent Democrats and only really, and you only care about Democrats, there's no effort at bipartisanship. There's nothing about passing legislation that will just help people in your district. You're only caring about the Democrats and the base that comes out and votes for you is that anti-Trump psychosis sells. Whether you're Pelosi, whether you're Schumer, whether you're, you know, de Blasio, although I still I have not met and this is pretty this is pretty amazing. I have not met a Democrat or a Republican. And I I'm here in New York City. We're doing the show in New York City. I live here. Spent my whole most of my life here, I should say. I have not met a single person who thinks Bill de Blasio is good at his job. I've not met one. Not one. Not a Democrat, not a Republican. I've asked a lot of them, too. It's not results-based, that's for sure. The city is definitely going downhill right now. But as I'm saying, it's really just about the anti-Trump branding of these various politicians. So the fact that Nancy Pelosi, to any normal person, would think, what, what legislation is she, is she suggesting? What should be? No, instead, it's just anti-Trump is everything now for the Democratic Party. That's all there is. Until they have power, they don't want to have a discussion about governing or legislating. They want power back in their hands. And then it's worth having a conversation about what could be done and not could be done for, but really what will be mandated to be done to the American people. That's how Democrats do it. They don't do things for you. Democrats in elected office do things to you. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I want to talk to you about the crazy left, which is going to be fun. Obviously, that's going to be a great time. But first, I had mentioned before this uh, New York. It's a New York Times poll of battleground states. And here are the actual states. I got some of them right. Trump, Biden, Sanders, Warren. And this was from October 13th to October 26th. Here's what was said. Um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina. Here's how this all matches up. Trump in Michigan. Biden up one, Sanders up three. Against Warren, Trump up four. Trump in Pennsylvania, Biden up one. Sanders, Trump up one. Warren, Trump up two. 
Wisconsin, Biden up two. Sanders even. Wisconsin, Trump up two. Florida, Biden up two. Trump up two. Trump up four against Warren. Up two against Sanders. Arizona, Biden up two. Trump up four. Even. North Carolina, Trump up two. Trump up four. Trump up four against Sanders and Warren. Does that sound like a situation where the Democrats should feel good? Let's keep in mind, Biden's a weak candidate. Media is propping him up as much as they can. He has the entire Hillary establishment now behind him, effectively. Not really the Obama coalition, but he's got the Hillary establishment backing Biden, which is interesting. When I mean, I mean CNN, MSNBC, I mean Biden is now their guy. Okay, but there's an understanding, there's some level of recognition that this is not a good idea, right? That Biden is unlikely to be able to defeat Trump even if the polls right now have him up, that's all within the margin of error, which means the polls could be oversampling Biden's support, and that wouldn't be surprising at all, would it? But Warren is getting crushed by Trump in all these places. Warren is getting crushed by Trump. And Sanders is getting crushed everywhere except for Michigan, basically, and even in Wisconsin. But Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, Sanders gets gets, uh, beaten. And this is all with the entire negative focus of the media against Trump and the split focus and the gentle criticism among different Democratic candidates that you get right now. So there you have it, my friends. This is why Democrats are in a state of freak out and panic over all of this. They don't talk about it that way, but that's why Nancy Pelosi has such a wide berth here. That's why she's able to do and Schiff is able to do so much um, in order to try and change the game. Which brings me now to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Because you know there are a lot of Democrats that are still kind of hoping that it won't be, that Biden is this old, confused establishment figure. He is, folks, he's, we already know he's corrupt. The whole thing with his son was so gross. It was wrong. It was wrong. Uh, it doesn't matter. If it's not illegal, that still is, you're still allowed to vote based on whether something is unseemly. And we don't even know, by the way, the extent of the possible wrongdoing of what Biden and his son did because they have not had an investigation. Now, maybe Ukraine did the investigation or maybe they said there's nothing there, but there's enough there from my end just to say, hey, maybe we should look into this a little bit more. But let's talk a bit now about let's start with Bernie and then we'll get into Warren. Bernie, you know, I want to talk about Bernie just so I can do this do the Bernie Sanders impersonation. Because it's my favorite one. It really gets me fired up. It gets me awake. gets me going. It's producer Mark's favorite. Because he's got a New York accent. And producer Mark is from the New York area. Right? I just want to hear him sing Hanukkah songs. Producer Mark, by the way, is Jewish. Producer Mark, if you want to tell us about Hanukkah one day, you know more about Sure. Yeah, I'll tell you the story of Hanukkah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So... Bernie's out there saying he's not left-wing. He's not, These are not left-wing ideas. These are the ideas, the American people. you got to open one eye kind of big sometimes, too. Like, you got to you know, squint one eye, open one eye big, wave the hand around. The American people want this to happen? Um, here's what Bernie says. Play clip eight, please. We'll hear from actual Bernie instead of my fake Bernie. Play eight. My ideas are not far left. They are the ideas that the American people want. The ideas... The American people want. Hmm. 
People want Medicare for all until they find out what Medicare for all would be and what it would cost. And then all of a sudden they don't want Medicare for all. It's not even Medicare for all, my friends. We'll get it. I, I know this is where we start already thinking about the disaster that Elizabeth Warren is trying to deal with in her. I, I, I have a plan. I, I have a plan that's going to take care of everybody's going to have better health care. No one's going to pay a penny more. No, that's not true, unfortunately. It's going to cost you a whole lot of money. We'll get into the tr- Once you start talking about trillions of dollars, everybody should be on edge. Once, once we're in the reimagining, remaking the entire U.S. economy and trillions of dollars involved in it, everybody should be thinking to themselves, what's really going on here? What is really happening? All right. Now, um, one area that I think we could all understandably just refuse Bernie Sanders' claim of a, a policy the American people want is the Green New Deal. Here's what Senator Sanders has to say about that. Play clip set. Unlike the current president, I don't believe that climate change is a hoax. I believe it is an existential threat to our country and the entire world. And that is why I strongly support the Green New Deal, which will create up to 20 million jobs, transforming our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. I mean, this is terrifying. I I think it's terrifying. That anybody in the press hears this and takes it seriously. First of all, if you think that climate change is an existential threat, then I'd like to know why why this if that is true, if that claim that is made, climate change is an existential threat, 20 million jobs, all this stuff. If that is true, why is any other issue right now even being spoken about by these Democrats? Existential means existing or not. If losing the battle over climate change when you have uh, one political party, which I'm a part of, with a lot of people in it, although not everybody, I think. I think even Newt Gingrich believes in climate change at some level. I'd have to check back on that. I mean, climate change is real. It's always been real, though, folks. This is the problem. This is the, the framing of the issue is inherently problematic. There's always been climate change. That's a fact. Climate is not static. How could it be static? That wouldn't make any sense. Weather is not static. And uh, I think the description once in the UN's IPCC report was, you know, climate is a you know, nonlinear decoupled chaos system or something. I mean, it's like really complicated stuff. No one really knows exactly how it goes, where it goes and what it's doing all the time. Um, we're still figuring a lot of this out, actually. But if it were the case, if if we took the Democrats at their word, like Bernie Sanders, on this issue, if it's an existential threat, then nothing else should matter. But if nothing else should matter, then why is there all this focus on other issues ranging from Medicare for all to transgender rights to making sure that illegal aliens who cross into America uh, have taxpayer funded abortions. I mean, there's there's all these different areas the Democrats are just so strongly engaged in and use very, uh, very, very extreme rhetoric in their efforts to try and push. None of those are existential issues, right? I mean, if we're talking existential threats, shouldn't that be the only focus? But I mean, the Green New Deal, if you read it, as I have several times, is laughable. It's not rooted in science. It is a document for socialism. 
The Green New Deal is socialism via, envi- via environmentalism. Plain and simple. The government all of a sudden becomes able to tell you what you can buy, what you can wear, how you can drive, where you can go, what you drive, everything. And it's an existential issue. So if you oppose it, if you stand in opposition to what they're trying to do, you are basically a threat to all of us. This is scary, actually. This is and this is not they are using words like existential. I'm not putting this in their mouths. They're using words like extinction of the human species. I'm not exaggerating this or trying to take this to a logical end that they have not yet gone to officially but are going to at some point they're already there so then why is there anything else that we even have to focus on or talk about why is there a discussion of any other issue because they don't really believe it's an existential threat they just understand how to appeal to the passions and biases of the left-wing base and more than anything else climate change is a massive exercise in virtue signaling. If you tell people that you believe in fighting climate change, you are within what is considered the scientific consensus, as the left describes it. You're a good person. You're a smart person. You're an ethical person. You're one of the good people. If you oppose it, you're one of the bad people. And that's really what this is. It's an exercise in personal branding. Because the moment I try to talk to people who believe in climate change about this, they start saying things like, well, I mean, I don't really think the world, I don't really think we're all going to die in 12 years if they, oh, okay, well then why is that being said all the time? And not by one person here or there, by the leaders of the movement. Why was there this, this bizarre willingness from adults, including the United States Congress, but certainly across the media, to be berated by a, uh, a foreign 16-year-old girl? Why was that acceptable for adults to do that? This is bizarre behavior for adults. Absolutely bizarre. And yet they did it. Never have good answers to this. But people just know that they don't want to be outside the circle, the circle of the good, the good, and the smart people, which is what the climate change believers are. Uh, the Green New Deal, if you read it, is, is preposterous. 20 million new jobs. What would the cost of jobs be in order to enact the proposals of the Green New Deal? These people all seem to forget that I think it's now over 90 percent of of uh, previously dug oil wells in the United States have fracking going on, that we have had a an energy revolution for uh, for oil and natural gas because of fracking technology, which fracking technology has been around in some form even since the 1940s. But they figured out how to do it much more efficiently and much better. And it has changed the energy world. We are enormous beneficiaries of this. In our economy. Uh, it even it even has affected geopolitics. It's kept the price of oil down, which has affected a lot of economies that are in, almost entirely reliant on oil for their uh, foreign currency reserves and for paying their own bills. Places like Venezuela and Russia and Saudi Arabia, these places have not been the beneficiaries of the fracking revolution in this country. But we can never even really calculate what that's done for us. And if the climate change alarmists had their way, they they tried to prevent this. I remember these movies about how all the, you know, all the, the water coming out of the tap was going to be flammable and they're going to poison the entire watershed. We're all going to, you know, we're basically, we're all going to die. These people are nuts. They're nuts. And their bad ideas have consequences, very negative consequences for real human beings. But it's just too seductive. It's too powerful to believe in something that makes you a better person than other people. It's too hard for them to walk away from this. They get excited at the notion of, being better than their political opponents. 
It doesn't matter if they're wrong. They're still better than them. And so when Bernie Sanders says that his ideas are not far left, what could be more far left than the Green New Deal, which said that all buildings in this country must be rebuilt so that they are green energy efficient? That's a lot of buildings, folks. What could be more radical than giving the government a license to regulate everything and anything based on a scientific theory that's really a religious belief? I'd like to know what is more, I mean, short of just empowering a revolutionary committee that can direct all aspects of the economy, that can pass rules affecting us by dicta that effectively replaces the legislature, that's called the Communist Party. So short of that, how much more radical are these policies going to get? Trillions of dollars of wealth moved from some people, some areas of the economy to others based on the central planning expertise of Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. People that no sane person would want involved in running a for-profit company. You wouldn't want these people telling you how to run your business. You don't think that they have a good sense of economic reality. So why should they be remaking the entire economy? I mean, this is the faculty lounge asserting itself in ways that all of us should be deeply troubled by. Not far left. How much more far left than Bernie Sanders can you really go before we stop talking about socialists and start talking about communists? Now, I know you can say, well, that seems kind of extreme. All right. The Green New Deal is not extreme. Medicare for all is not extreme. I mean, if we're talking about the outer boundaries of American politics for the last hundred years, this is it, my friends. These are the things that they're trying to get now that they've never been able to get in the past because they were considered too extreme. And now we're having an election over these very issues. Now we're having a national debate over whether Democrats should finally do the things that in every election up until now, a, an overwhelming majority of the American people were like, well, that's crazy. So we are voting on crazy in 2020, make no mistake about it. And the fact that the media is trying to normalize now what even 10 years ago they would have said was far outside the realm of normalcy just goes to show you how much the left-wing acceleration has occurred. It's not just that we're getting further left. It's happening faster and faster all the time. And their victories, unfortunately, tend to be permanent. They get a government bureaucracy built that never goes away. They get a law passed. They'll do everything to make sure that it stays, and that law never, that law will not be overturned. I mean, they, they tend to have permanent victories. We tend to have transient defensive actions. Oh, another, another day, another year where liberty will still exist in this country on an issue. But it's always under assault. I am deeply troubled by the rise of the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party. And I'm happy to see that the polls show that they would lose to Trump. But that could change as well. If we don't speak the truth about this, if people don't understand just how bad these ideas really are, a few percentage points away, Bernie Sanders is a few percentage points away in the polls from being able to beat Donald Trump. That is in in a capitalist, free market, individual rights based, limited government society or what's supposed to be all those things. That is stunning. So there is a, a, a fact about America today, and I strongly believe that justice is on the ballot in 2020. I strongly believe justice is on the ballot. And that includes, obviously, the fact that we have a criminal in the White House and he's basically a walking indictment in a red tie. 
What exactly is the crime that he committed? They'll call him a criminal. If you ask me what crime did Bill Clinton commit, he lied under oath. It's very easy. It's not complicated. What crime did Hillary Clinton commit? She violated the Espionage Act. What crime did Barack Obama commit? I don't have one for you. I think he was a bad president, made bad decisions. I don't, I don't have a crime that he committed in office. Maybe some of you can think of one. I, I do not have one. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend. But to say the president of the United States is a criminal for a Democrat running for office, a sitting senator at that, to say that he's a criminal and not tell you what the crime is, this is really a just another version, another description of what the Democratic Party is doing these days. It's just all smears and slogans and justice. Justice is on the ballot. She keeps saying that. I wonder which political consultant handed her that poll-tested phrase that it just doesn't sound like anything that anybody who really knows what they're talking about would say going into this election. No one cares. Justice is on the ballot. This is probably why Kamala Harris is losing in her home state to Andrew Yang, who's had no backing from the establishment media, really. Uh, Kamala Harris, the problem with her is she lacks um, something called national level political skills. Political pundits and even people in our own party don't want to admit it. They think that running a vague campaign that nibbles around the edges is somehow safe. But if the best Democrats can offer is business as usual after Donald Trump, Democrats will lose. So Elizabeth Warren is here to tell you that if you think that the safe establishment like Bernie War- like Bernie Sanders or oh I mean Joe Biden whatever you're going to lose so she's saying that she's a, a, a change candidate I suppose trying to borrow from some of that Obama magic from back in the day say what you will Obama won two elections folks if Democrats were smart they'd probably try to learn but he also there look there was a personal charisma that the guy had there was personal story that's very compelling Democrats this time around they don't have any of that they don't have it None of these candidates get on stage and have any normal person look at them and say, yeah, that's a truly charismatic politician that could win a national level election. They just don't have it. They don't have it. But Elizabeth Warren is up there trying to talk about her health care plan. And she's saying that not a not a penny of taxes will get raised on the middle class. This is this is nuts. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was getting more and more pressure to tell us. This, this, this is the, the focal point from a policy angle of the Warren campaign, of the Bernie Sanders campaign, and this would be the single most transformative policy proposal in the, for the next election. I mean, the Green New Deal, but nobody really, you'll ne- that'll never get through the Congress. I mean, that's never going to happen. By the way, I think you could make a strong case that Medicare for all would never make it through Congress. I think that that's not a stretch in the least. I think it's quite possible that Medicare for all would, at a minimum, get so watered down that it would no longer be, well, it shouldn't be called Medicare for all as it is right now, but it would get watered down in the other direction. Right now, Medicare for all is more generous than Medicare. It is more expansive, covers more, costs out of pocket less, of course, costs the government, I mean, cost the taxpayer Orders of magnitude more, as we know. But Elizabeth Warren has released her 20 pages 
of explanation for cost savings and all this stuff for the uh, essentially how to pay for her Medicare for all proposal. And everybody looked at this and just said, you got to be kidding me, right? You can't really believe this. Um, Here's the biggest, the biggest red flag. Bernie Sanders, to his credit, is like, yes, you got to pay more, but it's going to cost you less. Middle class families going to pay less in premiums and they pay more in taxes and they get back more in health care. It's going to be amazing. Okay, that's not good, but at least that's a plan. Not a smart plan, but it's a plan. Yeah, could we have a Medicare for all system if the middle class was paying 60% of their their income in taxes? We could probably have something like that. What would that do to economic prosperity? What would that do to the engine of growth in this country? Ah, you know, bad things. But could we have, yeah. We could probably figure out a way to do that. It'd just be a really bad idea. Elizabeth Warren, though, goes to the next step and goes, oh, no, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you all the good stuff that Bernie wants to give you, but it's not going to cost normal folks, you know, not the billionaires, not the corporation. By the way, the problem is billionaires and corporations both employ people. Uh, billionaires own companies that give that 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 have jobs for people that need people for productivity and to. So just always going after the billion. Look, I am far. I'm about a billion dollars short of being a billionaire. So I can't say that I can relate to the problems that they have. But I also think that demonizing the very wealthy in this country is unfair, dare I say, and also unhelpful, which is perhaps much more important. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of very, very rich people and some of them about, I think, a healthy percentage of them really just inherited their money, didn't actually make it. Um, but the fact of the matter is billionaires are important for the companies, the growth that we have in this country, the jobs that come from all of this. But Elizabeth Warren is saying that only they will pay. Play, uh, play 17, please, here. Senator, when you say you won't raise middle class taxes, what is the income bracket that you use to define Uh Here it's 100%. It doesn't raise taxes on anybody but billionaires. And you know what? The billionaires can afford it, and I don't call them middle class. So, billionaire, anyone, that's where it worked. Anyone under a billion dollars net worth? That's right. It's not paying a penny more. That's exactly right. Not paying a penny more. That's exactly right. Not paying a penny more. Can anyone really... Can anyone really believe that? Can anyone really think that that is the case? They're not going to pay a penny more? How is all the money going to come together? How is this going to happen? You're going to eliminate 170 million people from their health insurance and middle class tax increases will be nothing? This is fantasy land stuff. Here's how the Wall Street Journal lays some of this out. Start with the overall fiscal math, which is by itself staggering. Warren concedes that her plan will cost only slightly less than the $52 trillion the U.S. is expected to spend on health care in the next 10 years. She deducts from that what the feds now spend on Medicare and Medicaid, plus $6 trillion that the states contribute to Medicaid, the state-federal children's health insurance program, and government worker benefits. That leaves $30 trillion to finance. But Senator Warren waves her wand and says the bill will really only be $20 trillion. 
She makes the rest vanish by positing magical savings from things like comprehensive payment reform. One of her ideas is that the hardy perennial known as bundled payments, which has failed to reduce costs as promised by Obamacare. She says hospitals will be reimbursed at an average rate of 110 percent of current Medicare rates, which is supposed to address the criticism that Medicare currently undercompensates patient care. But hospitals now rely on private insurance payments to stay in business, and 110 percent of what Medicare now pays will hardly be enough to compensate for the loss of that private money. See, because of government mandates already in the healthcare market, like Medicare and Medicaid, there's already a subsidy process in place where your health insurance, if you have private insurance, listening to this right now, is propping up the hospitals so that they can give underpayment, or they, they, rather they can give care and get underpaid for it to people with Medicare, and even more so to people with Medicaid. You're paying for that already. Hospitals would go out of business without private insurers to milk to the maximum to make up for the care they give to people under under Medicaid and Medicare right now. So you're, you're just you're going to pay even more of, of, than the Medicare rate and think that that's going to no, know without private insurers kicking on all this money. It's not going to work. System doesn't hold together. You see, this is also why. And, and I know that when I was telling you about my debate at Politicon in Nashville with a couple of, well, one healthcare quote expert, he's a psychiatrist, and, uh, and a couple of uh, liberals, I said, why not just expand Medicaid for everybody who, expand Medicaid for everybody who does not have health insurance? Just say, if you, if you don't have health insurance, just all you have to do is sign up online, you've got Medicaid now. Why not just do that? It would be expensive, sure, but I mean, look what we're talking about, trillions and trillions of dollars. No, because... They know that Medicaid is not accepted by that many providers. It's not very good insurance. Why is Medicaid not very good insurance? Well, because it doesn't pay providers and hospitals, doctors and and hospitals, enough money. And there's not enough political will to funnel even more money into what is a welfare program. So what they want is to drag everybody into the same system. It's not everybody's getting the same health care. And the government gets to decide what that is. So, you know, this is this is dragging you in. You know, this is dragging essentially the Medicaid pool into the rest of the healthcare pool with everybody else and saying, here you go. Now the government's going to decide how we how we meet all of this out. And your decisions. Are you going to see a good doctor? How often do you see the doctor? Do you do preventative medicine? I mean, all these things that I mean, health is a very personal issue for everybody. All these decision-making processes, the government's going to make these decisions for you. They're going to tell you who you can see, when, you, or you go to private. See, what's really going to happen is that the elites, the Nancy Pelosi's and the Schumer's and their kids and their families and et cetera, et cetera, they're going to keep going to private doctors. You're going to have what you have in Canada. You're going to have what you have in the UK. There'll still be a private medical system, no insurance. So there'll be people that are getting great health care. There'll be a small segment. And there'll be a lot of people getting really mediocre health care and no market mechanisms to deliver much better health care in the future. It'll stay. It'll be this just this big, bloated mass of government bureaucracy and mediocrity. I mean, I always say this to people. When, when, I, when I see, uh, you know, a heart surgeon who pulls up to the hospital in a Porsche with a license plate that says, heart man, great. Because you want a guy who's making seven figures to be operating on your heart with little scalpels and putting all kinds of stuff back together you want a guy who's really good 
Or do you want a system where, you know, the people that are going to go into this, eh, it would have been more profitable to be a veterinarian. So they went into that instead. That's where we're heading. You know, look at what, you know, doctors in the UK, I asked a friend of mine in the UK recently, well, you know, what, what is a surgeon paid in the UK? And he he's, has ties to medical. He says, you know, a couple hundred grand. I mean, it's a nice living, but it's not what heart surgeons make here, my friends. Not at, not at big hospitals. So they don't understand the economics here. Care's not going to get better. It's the same stuff that you've been using, the same procedures, the same, you know, uh, you know, ortho procedures, the same, uh, what do you call it, MRI machines. And it's like, if you go to the MRI machine, it's like 1970s technology still, 1960s technology sometimes. It's not going to get better because there's no profit incentive. Why was someone going to make it better? They're just going to keep doing what they're doing right now. This is also, this is the problem with government in charge of anything. We see this every single time, but they refuse to believe it's the case now. Why? I, I can't even begin to tell you other than an ideological need for state control, central planning, and socialism. That's what this is really all ultimately about. And if you thought that Elizabeth Warren had a, a basic understanding of economics necessary to at least be a good central planner, because there's different, you know, there's different levels of central planning. Switzerland has pretty much universal care. So does Singapore. They have a public option. There are ways to do this. It's still expensive, but those are much smaller countries for one. And they have a public option, but they don't outlaw private insurance. They haven't destroyed the private insurance market entirely. There are ways we could talk about this. There are ways we could make sure that nobody doesn't have any form of health care. We already have a Medicaid system that has tens of millions of people on it, for example. We're already trying to do this. But here's Elizabeth Warren when she when she's asked about this plan, which is just nobody really thinks that her numbers are correct. Here's what she says. What's going to happen to the whole medical insurance industry, which is a pretty big industry? Where, where are those people going to go work? Play 16. So if you've had a chance to read the plan, you'll see no one gets left behind. Uh, some of the people currently working in health insurance will work in other parts of insurance and life insurance and auto insurance and car insurance. Some will work for Medicaid. And there is a five-year transition support for everyone. Because what this is about is how we strengthen America's middle class and how we make sure that in transitions, no one gets left behind. It's right there in the plan, and it's fully paid for. Yeah. People will go work for other insurers because it's like all the same and those insurance companies will just inherently <laughs> inherently need a whole lot more employees than they currently have is she serious i think she is because what's gonna happen is that they're gonna just they're just gonna say hey you're insurance i was insurance then elizabeth warren came by and destroyed my whole industry and so you're just going to give me a job because insurance equals insurance. Producer Mark, I mean, I haven't I haven't been uh, dusting off my Milton Friedman recently, but I'm pretty sure that that's not how it works. No, I don't think that's how it works either. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's you, not. You notice she said auto insurance and car insurance. Yeah. Last time I checked, that's the same thing. Also a good point. Yeah. But maybe if we break up auto insurance into into SUV insurance and sedan insurance and all these different industries, we have more insurance. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, because I don't pay enough for car insurance yeah. already. But this let's, is the ma- this is the magic of of, of Warrenism. Just say stuff that makes no sense whatsoever. But you really want to protect the working people. You got to kind of move your hand around and bob your head around as you're talking, and then people will really believe you. Uh, this was a disaster for her. Um, back to this. Uh, oh, actually, uh, I, I want to get a little more into the numbers because if I'm going to say it's a disa- disaster, I got to pr- provide you with the numbers. All right. So we're talking about Elizabeth Warren's healthcare debacle and the funding for it. From Wall Street Journal breaks this down. There, look, one thing Wall Street Journal knows is money. Here's what she writes. The details of how Warren would pay for the 20, $20.5 trillion are even more fantastical. Start with her employer Medicare contribution. Instead of paying employee health care premiums, businesses would cut a check to Uncle Sam to the tune of $8.8 trillion over 10 years based on what they pay now. She says per employee health costs for every employer would remain about the same. But payroll costs of this sort are essentially middle class taxes on employees. Fixing per employee business costs at some future date would also be an incentive for companies to reduce their coverage now to reduce future costs. So employees would get worse coverage than what they have now. If this employer contribution raises less money than projected, her fallback is to, quote, whack big companies with extremely high executive compensation and stock buyback rates. Meantime, she had to also raise the corporate tax rate back to 35% from 21%. She says uh, this would generate $1.75 trillion over 10 years, which is fanciful since it would be an immediate incentive for companies to relocate overseas. She also wants to soak the rich. She wants a new annual tax on unrealized capital gains of the wealthiest 1% of households, raising $2 uh, trillion over 10 years. And this is a joke, folks. Elizabeth Warren, Harvard Law professor. Fake Native American. Not very good at math. This proposal's a joke. Welcome back to Buck Sexton Show. It's uh, starting to happen here again in New York City. I remember seeing it a lot more when I was a kid. People who, in our subway system, which is very effective at getting you places, but charmless. It's not nice. Those of you who haven't been to New York, I can tell you it's... Uh, and you see some stuff on our subway. You see some things happen. And that's just always been the way. Uh, you go to other cities. I mean, you go to the D.C. subway system, and it's like a it's like a Disney Park amusement ride in comparison. It's so clean, and everything seems. I know they've had problems with track fires, but it seems like everything is much much nicer in the D.C. subway system, which serves a much smaller number of people. But here in New York, we kind of like our gritty subway. Gets us where we need to go for under three dollars. You can travel all the way from way up in the Bronx all the way out to. Uh, you know, far Rockaway in Queens, which, I mean, producer Mark, how many miles is it? That's a long way, right? I don't know. I mean, it'll probably take you over an hour on the subway, but I mean. Yeah, an hour, hour and a half. Hour, hour and a half, right. Yeah. Yeah. But you can get across the city in that little amount of time. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying, it's, it can get you far. It gets you far. So the subway's pretty impressive here. There's a problem, though, and I, I've been seeing this more recently. In fact, I just saw it uh, right here at our subway stop near where we do this show, where you see people now who just, they walk up to the turnstiles and they just hop right over. Just not pay, not paying the fare anymore. So, all right. Well, let's let's if we if we can take a look at what this is leading to. What's going on here? Uh, NYPD is getting because there's, there's cameras in a lot of these subways too, so they see this. NYPD is getting reports of people. It's called fare evasion. 
And they will make arrests based on this because some of us like me here in New York City remember that you had these small crimes that would happen and nobody would do anything about them. This is broken windows theory. You've probably heard of this broken windows theory where when a window is broken in a building, it's more likely that if it's left that way, other windows will be broken. And then all of a sudden the whole place is burnt out in a slum and bad things happen Uh, in New York. That was the feeling on the streets when I was growing up here and it was uh, almost 3,000 murders a year in 1993. I think it was 27 or 2,800. And now we're down to three, you know, under 300 murders. So you're talking about a 90% drop in homicides, which is a big deal. 90% drop in homicides. Um, but you had graffiti everywhere. Graffiti was a scourge in the city. There's graffiti all over the place. And there were people constantly doing petty crimes. Uh, fair evasion was a major one. And what they found was that by enforcing laws, not only were you helping quality of life in these areas, but by enforcing smaller laws, you came into contact with people who are more likely to be wanted for other bigger issues. This is just the way it was. And I was in the NYPD for uh, in the intelligence division as a civilian counterterrorism analyst for 18 months. So I had some familiarity with how all this stuff worked. And. The guys, the old sergeants and detectives have been on the job a long time and were here back in the 90s doing this stuff said, you know, the guy who, you know, sometimes you grab a guy for a fair evasion and it turns out that he's wanted on an attempted murder charge when you, when you run his, his, uh, his biographical data in the system. So now you have people that are increasingly doing this fair evasion thing. I've, I've seen it. I've seen people just walk right past me, hop over. And they don't pay and they go on. So they're stealing, you know, $2.75 from a city. Look, it's not a horrible felony. I'm not pretending like people that do this should be locked up forever or anything. I mean, I've almost once or twice absentmindedly like walked through the gate the wrong way when a gate will be open to the subway. So look, I mean, things can happen. But these people are doing this intentionally. It's bad. So what the NYPD has done is they've set up more cops in places where there's fair evasion happening and they're trying to make arrests. Well, guess what? There is a disrespect for police that is growing, particularly here in New York City, but it's in a lot of urban centers across the country, a disrespect for police. And this gotcha game trying to get cops on video who are being rough with suspects. And I don't mean abusing them. I just mean having to, you know, watching a cop wrestle someone to the ground and put cuffs on them is a violent thing. And if you make the police do that, People get bumps, bruises, things happen. It's not nice, which is why when an officer says you're under arrest, the proper response is to put your hands behind your back as instructed, deal with it in court. The proper response is not, nah, I'm not getting arrested. Now, this reminds me of the whole Eric Garner situation. Eric Garner, whose family's been paid millions of dollars because he was killed during a, a routine arrest. For a very minor issue of selling loose cigarettes, I understand it's a minor issue, but it's still an it's still an offense you can be arrested for. And they re- he was he just the, the the real problem the initiating event was a very large man saying that he wasn't getting arrested today. I, you know, once that happened, once the cops say you're under arrest and you say no, I'm not. Now you are challenging their authority, and force is coming. Because behind every police decision, behind every police arrest, is the threat of force. It's the same threat of force, by the way, that exists when people say that they want to 
raise your taxes and you say, well, you know, I don't want to pay them. Keep in mind, they will send men with guns to your home to arrest you if you don't pay your taxes. So there's a threat of force behind all of these things. So in the Eric Garner case, he, he had a heart condition. He grabbed him around the neck. Guy fell down. He went into cardiac arrest, died. And this was viewed as, as terrible police abuse. I think it was a very unfortunate situation, but you're not allowed to say I'm not getting arrested today. That hasn't changed. And there are people that are being uh, grabbed by these police, these NYPD units for fare evasion, and they're just trying to escape. They're, they don't want to get arrested for this. And they're saying they're not going to get arrested. And then you have audio that we can play for you here of people protesting the NYPD in response to this. Just mad as play, play clip two, please. You know what terrifies Police brutality, systematic racism, colonial mindsets. Like, what, what's the confusion? Well, we're marching out here to protest the NYPD violence, uh, both in the subway and on the streets. Uh, the police are modern-day slave catchers, and they're going around in the city beating and killing people. And we're out here to say we have enough of that. What a horrible slander of the NYPD, which I would also like to note for all of you is a very diverse police department. It takes a lot of pride in being a very diverse police department. Uh, one of the advantages the NYPD had, even in the, in the world of counterterrorism, was you could pretty much find somebody who was a, a uniformed officer of the NYPD who spoke any dialect of any language in the world fluently. Uh, not every single one, but pretty close. And for them to say these, for these processes to say these things, and, and you know, there, there's more than this too. There are videos that have gone viral of the NYPD trying to make arrests and Crowds gather around them and are and are rooting against the police and are yelling at the police are racist and people are resisting arrests, assaulting police. They're making videos of this. This is disconcerting because this can lead to really frightening incidents and this could lead to a lethal force situation. And these stories about a racist, uh, a, a racist police department. When that's told, and it's told by leftists and activists and you know, anti-police groups in particular, uh, but when that is told, that has ramifications for safety in neighborhoods across the city. It has ramifications because this is the largest city in America at the national level, too. Do we respect our police? Do we like our law enforcement officers in this country, by and large? Do we appreciate the job they do? The answers to those questions are very important, and the intersectional race-obsessed left dabbles far too much in police hatred and particularly around the issue of claiming that law enforcement is uh, is inherently and systematically racist. They love to say this. The left loves to claim that police departments are racist. And to this, I would just say we went through this in New York before where any police action was always under tremendous scrutiny where there was a lack of communication and a lack of respect shown to local law enforcement by in predominantly in, in minority uh, communities. And there was a bloodbath on the streets. I mean, there was just far too much violence going on. And after a while, people here in New York said, everyone started to say, we just want safe streets. We want our, we want our, you know, our wives and mothers to be able to walk to the store without being attacked. We want our kids to be able to go to school without being mugged or robbed. Uh, you know, do what you have to do to get us there. And we went through that. I'm worried now that after years of uh, declining crime in this city and in other places, too, where there's been declining crime, uh, the old liberal mentality of 
enforcing the law is 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 often racist. Enforcing laws that on on its face there's nothing wrong with the law, right? Fair evasion is not a racist crime, right? It's not a crime of race. It's are you paying whoever you are, whatever race you are, are you paying the fare or not? But the left will say, oh, but when you look at uh, disproportionate impact on different communities, then it becomes a racial issue. When you look at disproportionate impact of all kinds of different criminal justice initiatives, it's an issue. And and so police all of a sudden are the bad guys for enforcing the laws. And we you're seeing more of this. You're seeing uh, an, an increase in this. And there's also been these videos of trashing police cars, throwing actual trash cans or trash bags on them here in New York. And I find this not just despicable, but but also really troubling. I think people have forgotten what it's like in a lot of places in New York, in Los Angeles, perhaps in parts of San Francisco, forgotten that, you know, we don't have to generally think about our day to day safety in these major cities in most of the neighborhoods that you live in. It's not true in some parts of Chicago. It's not true in some parts of Baltimore, but in a lot of major cities, safety is of minor is of minor concern day to day. That wasn't always the case. And we have law enforcement to thank for that. And we have a police force across the board in this country that is overwhelmingly of us, meaning these are our people who live in our communities. That's the thing with the NYPD. These guys all live here. They got families here. They all want safe streets too. The, the NYP doesn't go back to some police barracks at the end of the day where they're plotting ways to make our lives miserable. And they, they got wives, they've got kids, they've got husbands. They're just trying to do their jobs and keep the streets safe. But you'll notice there's far too much of a willingness on the left. There's far too much of a home for real open disrespect for police and for law enforcement. And they've never really come to grips with this. And it's in part because the intersectional obsession with uh, dividing us by race often turns into or or becomes an issue of, of police enforcement of the law and police violence. We need to support law enforcement when they're doing the job that they're supposed to do. And that means sometimes that for relatively minor crimes, you're going to get arrested. You're going to get arrested. People know they shouldn't do this. We've decided the duly constituted authorities who can make things like fair evasion illegal have said you can't do it. And if you choose to break that law, you're going to have to pay the price. And I'm not getting arrested today or I don't feel like getting arrested for this is not an option. That is an invitation to anarchy. That is an invitation to the nullification of far more laws deeply troubling stuff and that when we talk about the green new deal or global migration compact it's not out of self-interest it is because as one of the world's largest polluters we have a responsibility to the world to address the existential threat that is of climate change ilhan omar is verbalizing here an increasingly widespread sentiment among the uh, Democrat left in this country. When, do we, when can we just start calling them socialists? Commies is obviously a bit of a pejorative, though it's fun to call them commies. They're technically not communists because they don't advocate for a revolutionary dictatorship of a central committee that uh, is in place of a legislature. And, you know, so there's, okay, fine. It's not really fair to say that the Democrats are commies, but they're getting pretty close. Definitely socialists. But the framing here of the issue that Ilhan Omar gives you is very interesting. She says that because we're a polluter, we have a responsibility 
to the rest of the world. Hmm. Now, is anyone going to hold China or India responsible for their polluting? Of course not. But in this country, we're told, well, we are. And, and I would note that they've conflated CO2 with pollution. CO2 is not a pollutant. They've now convinced courts and they've now created this whole line of thinking that CO2 in excess becomes a pollutant. CO2 is less than 1% of the atmosphere. Uh, this stuff that they are, are promoting with, with treating CO2 like it's the same as poison in your water is insane. I mean, CO2 is what plants need for photosynthesis. You know, they take in CO2, they release oxygen. And Ilhan Omar, though, is setting the groundwork here. And this she's not the only one. AOC and many others in the Green New Deal, they want America to start paying the rest of the world for the progress that America has made because of fossil fuels. We are supposed to pay environmental reparations to the rest of the world. This is the beginning of this movement, environmental reparations, meaning that we have to subsidize developing countries, countries that have not been able to utilize uh, technology, industry, and, and just commercial processes as effectively as we have to become as wealthy as we are. So we're going to just start sending, they're going to take money from you. You're the taxpayer. The money only comes from you. All right? the, the government has no money. It only has your money. They're going to start taking that and redistributing it to the world. This is a global Marxist scheme. And they're speaking about it openly. And notice another thing about the Green New Deal. You know, you know that the whistleblower situation is garbage because when you have people like Adam Schiff as your standard bearer, that's really all you have to know. Notice how the Green New Deal, the, the members of Congress who are promoting it are the uh, furthest to the left, the least economically literate, I mean, the least understanding of basic economics, the least under the least uh, judgment on how to promote growth and prosperity in, in an economy, the worst judgment, I should say, on how to do those things. Those are the members of Congress who are the most behind this. You have to pay attention to that. That, that matters. That's not an accident. It's not, it's not out of nowhere that the people that are saying, let's do the Green New Deal are the people that you would least want to hire for your private sector company as any kind of productive employee. Um, I thought this was interesting as well. Omar and the imbalance of power dynamic. Please play uh, 21. Bernie knows what Minnesotans know, that in the root of every injustice is an imbalance of power, whether through gender, association, corruption, wealth, or race. The ability to wield control over another is basis of injustice. But the ability to wield power over somebody else is not always a function of gender or race or sexual orientation. This is what the left doesn't seem to understand. That it is, in fact, often people running a government apparatus who look and sound and speak very much the same way as the people that they are oppressing. That that can happen, too. That the problem is actually the mechanism of government power that violates individual rights, individual dignity. That's where a lot of oppression comes from. Uh, but she was giving you essentially a, a working definition of intersectionality, which has become a, yet another obsession on the left. Intersectionality is the basis for so much of the far left's thinking on issues ranging from climate to healthcare to really everything now. 
And it just means that they view, and whatever the issue is, it can never just be what's good for people. It's always, what does this mean for this group? What does it mean for that group? Who is being elevated? Who is being suppressed? It's a dizzying and ultimately uh, just worthless exercise, but that is what they want to do with every government policy, put it in the framework of intersectionality. So he seems to have made it up. This is par for the course from the president, but we shouldn't get used to this. You know, we teach our children to tell the truth and we teach our children that the president is supposed to tell the truth. So even when the United States is celebrating a major military victory, uh, I think we should still hold the bar as high as possible for the president of the United States. Uh, You know, Stephanie Grisham, the White House press secretary, took issue with the New York Times report and said here, is it not possible just to celebrate that a terrorist, murderer, and rapist has been killed? Yes, of course. I think it's been very clear for a week there's been a celebration uh, that al-Baghdadi is dead. But it is also possible to expect the president to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And for now, it seems the Republican Party is okay with him spinning up these stories, even about U.S. military action. Well, it's really important, Brad Stelzer wants you to know, it's really important that uh, when you're... Talking about the death of the most wanted terrorist mastermind of the world, an evildoer, a murderer, a rapist, it's very important that all the details are exactly correct, or else we should really just focus on how the president's a bad guy. I can't believe it, but I guess I should. Here we are, being lectured by Brian Stelter, who it's still a, a shock to anybody with any knowledge of of television skills, personality, and, and all the rest of it, that this guy has a show anywhere, never mind at CNN. And he is trying to tell us that it's normal that there's this focus at CNN that Trump said that Baghdadi died, you know, whimpering like, you know, whimpering like a dog, which there was always that initial complaint, too. They had a Lawrence Tribe at Harvard University, the uh, professor emeritus at Harvard Law School, saying that that this proved that Trump, and he was being serious, Trump has some hostility to dogs so the stupid meter goes off the charts with democrats on a, on a whole bunch of things when it comes to trump we know that that's that's just a statement of the of the obvious but okay so if trump was into you know if he was using his intuition that baghdadi running down a dark you know passageway with bringing children with him with a suicide vest on being chased by a highly trained Belgian Malinois, which I'm assuming is, is how the situation played out. I don't even really know. And that Baghdadi was, you know, whimpering and crying about it. Okay, well, I, you know, is it, can the New York Times prove or can Brian Seltzer prove that he didn't? They really, they really want to fact check this one? But this is what I mean. There's a, a, a pretending, among the media, there's a pretending that there is... Um, no under that they have no sophisticated understanding of storytelling or the English language or how normal people speak. You know, whenever Trump says something, even if he's kind of kidding or if it's sarcastic, if there's a joke, they go, did you hear what Trump said? Because they'd rather look stupid to intelligent people than uh, take an intelligent position and upset stupid people. This is how the Democrats in the media approach their work. Right. It's better to feign idiocy so that you can appeal to left wing base than to admit that you understand what the president was doing or or you give the benefit of the doubt on something where it does. It just doesn't really matter. And, you know, they're looking for this corroboration of President Trump saying that uh, Baghdadi looked like a dog. I mean, died like a died like a dog. Um, And the truth is, uh, you know, Baghdadi is a bad guy. 
and Trump got him. And ultimately, you sit here, you say, what is what is this all about with the media saying that, oh, he didn't do this or he didn't do that? You know, they're really they're really that worried about such a, a minor detail. But this is like the two scoops thing. Remember when Trump had two scoops of ice cream and everybody else got one at the White House? That was a news story. There's nothing that's too little, too petty for these people to focus on, which is one of the reasons why I think for those of us who pay attention, it's so hard to take them seriously. I mean, here's here's Brian Stelter getting all, all upset about Trump's spelling on Twitter. Play it. Everybody makes spelling mistakes. All right. Everybody does. I do. Everybody does. But on Twitter, Donald Trump makes a lot more of them than most people. Just this week, he misspelled Republican and unfair. But those are hardly the worst examples. We have seen countless absurd spellings from the commander in chief. He is called showbiz shoebiz. There's hamburgers. There's the uh, smocking gun. There's a lot of these, even misspelling his wife Melania's name. Who cares? They're typos. You know, the guy's a boomer and he's, you know, his fingers maybe sometimes get a little bit uh, sloppy on the on the smartphone or whatever. Who can't? But like, what what is this? How is there a focus on this? This guy's got his own show on CNN. There's so many important things to talk about. They focus on this. though. Why? Because it's just another thing about, you know, Trump is bad. Trump can't spell. Trump is evil. I just wonder if they ever, ever get bored of this. I, I think the answer is probably not. But it is disconcerting to me that they they just can't help themselves. They'll dig into any bit of anti-Trump minutia. Um, by the way, also, uh, Christine Blasey Ford, I just wanted to get this in today because I, I'm still, I'm angry at, at the journalists pretend, talk about pretending to be stupid. They pretended to be very stupid when Blasey Ford was the most important anti-Kavanaugh voice out there trying to defend the activist bent of the the activist left wing bent of the Supreme Court because the left has been able to rely on the Supreme Court for decades to hand them victories they never could have gotten through the legislative process. And Blasey Ford, uh, we were told that she had nothing to gain, nothing to gain from this. And people like me were saying, you're joking, right? I mean, she's going to have a book deal. You're going to cover a magazine. It's going to be a hero tenured professor at whatever school she wants or some even better than a tenured professor, some cushy administrative position. She's going to be uh, hooked up, as they say. They're going to give her all kinds of goodies and great things because she's a warrior for the left, an ideological warrior for their cause. Uh, Now, you can argue about whether or not that she was doing the right thing by trying to destroy a man's character and, you know, assassinate his entire reputation uh, just to protect Roe v. Wade. I think that it's the most heinous and disgusting thing I've ever seen in politics. Some people would, on the left, of course, would say, oh, but it was worth it. But just put that aside for a second. Uh, can we at least all agree that a normal intelligent take on this would be that Christine Blasey Ford clearly had had reason, ideological and professional and financial benefit that would come from being the the would-be weapon of Kavanaugh's Supreme Court destruction or Supreme Court nomination destruction. And now here she is talking about, uh, well, here we can hear from Christine Blasey Ford. Play clip three. I was inspired by Anita Hill when I was deciding whether to testify, but it didn't occur to me at the time that I would be inspiring anyone else. I was focused on telling the U.S. Senate what had happened to me. I simply thought that it was my duty as a citizen 
and that anyone in my position would do the same thing. That's going to be the narrative that HBO makes into a movie. Just give it five or ten years. Just like they did with Anita Hill. Just, just give it five or ten years and the story's not going to be... This is the problem that we have in dealing with the left. The, the cultural dominance that they're able to still bring to bear in Hollywood and the creative realms. They're going to, Blasey Ford will be played. You know, Mark my words. It'll take a while. Hopefully I'll still be on the radio doing this show. Give it five years. They will have the most appealing... Hollywood uh, actor, actress, pro, uh, are we not supposed to say actress anymore? Is it now just everyone's an actor? I forget. Whatever. Uh, the most appealing Hollywood actress possible playing her in a role that will lionize her for all eternity. But they pretended like this was unknowable, that no serious person would have thought that Blasey Ford had anything to gain from doing this. I do think there's one, there's one aspect of the Blasey Ford story that is really... Really important and very helpful, and that is that it is a it is the example we should all remember of what is not credible accusation, what is not being credibly accused. Here was a very high level accusation, and it's all over the United States Senate with tens of millions of people watching at home on TV. And if what she did was considered a credible accusation, then everything is a credible accusation, which means that it was not credible. And to call it anything uh, other than, in fact, not credible is doing a disservice to the truth. The journalists are also in this, but have you ever heard a journalist apologize for being wrong on this or being so ideologically driven that he or she couldn't report on the facts objectively? Of course not. It was all about the cause, my friends. It was all about the, the, the purpose of Blasey Ford, not the truth of the underlying allegations. That never really mattered to anyone. That never had anything to do with anything. <laughs> Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. All right, Matthew writes into Roll Call here. Oh, remember, it's facebook.com slash Section or teambuck at iheartmedia.com. We hope you're enjoying the uh, Pluto video stream. If you haven't checked it out yet, just download. It's totally free, no subscription, no nothing. The Pluto TV app, channel 248, and you can watch the Buck Sexton show, the Jesse Kelly show, more Amazing content in 2020. Going to be joining our lineup too. We can't get into too much of that right now, but we got good things coming. But I mean, all you really need is Buck Saxon and Jesse Kelly. You'll know everything you need to know about the day, and you can watch us uh, doing our respective shows as you can. So, yeah, man, that's um, good thing. Good things there, and also please continue to spread the word about the podcast. The biggest help you could give some people right now, Buck, how can I help? The biggest way you could help the Bucks Action show would be to get some new person in your life to just start downloading this on iTunes. Just start listening to the show on iTunes. Tell one person, they start listening. If everybody listening now did that, we'd be one of the, gosh, I don't know, probably one of the top, uh, certainly in the top 20 or 30 podcasts for politics out there. So please get people to uh, listen to the Bucks Action show and tell them about it. All right. Matthew writes, Democrats need to go back to preschool to learn. That's where we learned about the story of the ant and the grasshopper. Uh, the ant and the grasshopper were hard at work, and they saved, uh, were the ant and the grasshopper, rather. Well, I don't know what this is. And the story of the little red hen. There was a time in my life I chose not to work hard. I worked enough to survive, and I was happy with my simple life. And there's some parts of my, of my life that I was happy because I worked my butt off, and I was able to live more luxuriously. Yeah, Matthew, I mean, people don't like to be told about uh, about 
cause and effect. They don't like to be told that our decisions matter. It's far preferable for many people to think that there's some invisible invisible uh, force that's blocking them from achieving what they should achieve or that there's some other you know problem out there. I'm just, you know, this is one of the things that Democrats do. Structural misogyny, structural racism, structural class oppression, all of this. Uh, meanwhile, we've created a society where there's more possibility for upward mobility than any uh, anything in the history of the world before it. We never really get much credit for that. By the way, Dennis Prager was on. Uh, he was on Bill Maher the weekend. Dennis Prager came ready to ready to roll. I was impressed. Bruce and Mark, it's worth you checking it out if you haven't seen it, man. Dennis Prager showed up and he was not. I'd never seen him in that mode. He was like cracking knuckles and cracking skulls. It's pretty good. Uh, let's see here. Todd, I've noticed the liberal media articles refer to President Trump as Mr. Trump. Um, well, Todd, I certainly can believe that that's happening. I don't know off the top of my head if that seems to be happening in major publications a lot like the New York Times, Washington Post, but I would have to check it out. But thank you so much. Alex writes in, why do liberals dominate the media and academia? Do they just have some predisposition toward opportunities allowing them to indoctrinate people? Keep up the great work. You know, Alex, it's a very good question, and there's not an easy or ready answer to it. Um, you know, why do liberals dominate the media academy? I mean, one is because they operate in those realms like it's a country club. And so once liberals get inside the organization, they feel ideologically compelled and justified in pushing out anybody who's not like them. Um, it doesn't share their belief system. And so in that way, this is I, I forget whose uh, law this is. It's, it's not really a law, but uh, whose maxim that any organization that is not explicitly right wing will become left wing. It's generally true. Uh, any organization that grows over time will have politics and they will dom they will be dominated by the left unless the place is kept as a conservative bastion. Uh do liberals want to indoctrinate the youth? Yeah, I think that they they feel very passionately about make liberals insist that everybody else think what they think. Conservatives are happy to just know what is true and live their lives in peace. <laughs> that's that's a big difference between the general mindset of the uh, two sides. Matt, hey Buck, are we at a point where one's politics as an adult are determined by those of the teachers or professors in our last years of school? It's obvious we conservatives are contradicting the leftist orthodoxy. Most of those in Foggy Bottom, Langley, and the Hoover Building were taught shields high. Um, are we at a point where we're determined by those teachers last years of school? Uh, I'm, I'm not really clear, Matt, on, on how you're framing the question here, but I can just say that, yeah, I mean, people, there's a lot of indoctrination that goes on in the academy, uh, starting at a very young age in schools, and then in government, a lot of people that are drawn to government work tend to have a more left of center mindset. They think the government does good things. They think the government is uh, something that should be more involved, not less involved in people's lives. They believe in the mission. Generally going to work for the federal bureaucracy, you don't have people that have a tremendous amount of personal ambition. Uh, there's more of a mission ambition, I guess you, you could say. They want to be a part of something bigger, but they're not looking to be famous or rich or... Uh, you know, change the game. I mean, you wouldn't go to the federal government. It's one of the reasons why I left the federal government. I wanted to do more stuff that was stuff for me. 
Uh, Sue, listen every night. Glad you're on more shows live. Your opinion means a lot to me. I tell all my friends to listen to your podcasts. I live in Western Massachusetts. It's hard to talk to anyone here. Don't know friend from foe. Well, Sue, thank you. And thank you so much for doing what you can to, uh, to help the show grow. It means a lot. And we are always there for you. We are your friends, whether you're in Western Mass or anywhere else in the country, you can count on team buck to be there with you. Um, Hold on. Let's see this. Uh, Travis writes a long one here. Uh, hold on. I, I, Travis, I don't have time for this one, but I will I will read it. It looks like he wrote quite a bit, so I won't be able to get to it. Nathaniel, hey, Buck, why do liberals want to suppress speech, especially political ads? Because our freedom-loving president wields speech better than they do. He exercises First Amendment rights to their constant detriment. Oh, my friend... Uh, we need to keep the petty dictators off our lawn. Shields high. Nathaniel, couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks for writing in, but I will repeat myself. Shields high. 